good evening, whoever you are, wherever you are listening. Welcome back to Monsignor's Parish Radio Podcast. Once again, it's your Lenten penance because Steve and Andrew were not be able, were not able to be with me this week once again. So tonight, it's or this morning, this afternoon, whatever it is, it's just me. Um, but tonight, this morning, this afternoon, whenever you're listening, what I'd like to talk about is the temptation of Christ. This is uh, an important thing that we consider during Lent. Um, it's in one of the early Gospels of the Lenten season, and I thought I would tackle it now that we're almost halfway through Lent, um, and I'm sure we've undergone all of our own temptations um, and have tried to see in some way or another how Christ is united with us in our temptations, even though he didn't know sin. So it certainly can be difficult to consider that Christ is like us in all things but sin, as St. Paul writes to the Hebrews, for we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And yet it seems that because of this one dissimilarity, there is a great divide between us and him that seems to mar, actually, our Lord's humanity. Christ, being God and united to a human nature, hypostatically, cannot sin. Yet the scripture accounts of his temptation must be accounted for. There seems to be a difficulty reconciling these two positions. For if Christ is truly human, that there must be the freedom to choose to yield the temptations he underwent. If he was not really tempted, or if he was not free to choose, then he cannot be said to be truly human. So let's look at uh, tonight, or this afternoon, this morning, um, we'll look at an answer to this difficulty and provide a synthetic look at the temptation of Christ, according to St. Thomas, my go-to theologian, of course. So in the first place, I'd like to offer my own opinion in this. So this will be done by looking at the two notions presented as the basis for the difficulty. First, I want to consider the notion of temptation as a constituent part of being authentically human. Second, the idea of freedom of choice, well, we should consider that too. So after this, uh, we'll turn to consider what St. Thomas has to say on the matter of the temptations of Christ. And I've referred to four texts for this uh, podcast. The Summa Theologiae, the Catena Orea, the Commentary on the Epistle to the Hebrews by St. Thomas. And I've also um, looked into Jesus of Nazareth, the book by Joseph Ratzinger, uh, Pope Benedict XVI. So these texts should give us a sufficient idea of how St. Thomas understood the scriptures with regard to the particular instance of the actualization of Christ's humanity in the temptations, and also uh, by looking at Ratzinger's contemporary view of some of the same scriptural texts. Now, in my opinion, the question is based on a false understanding of human nature. It's based on the idea that the experience of temptation is proper to our nature and somehow constitutive of it. The sense of difficulty or being drawn against our will to that which is not consonant with right reason is not a part of authentic humanity. It is rather a result of the fall of original sin. That inner fight which all of us experience in the face of a dilemma is not what makes us authentically human. In actual fact, it is rather the opposite. To have the lower passions controlled by right reason without difficulty is more properly human than locating any sort of quote-unquote authenticity in the disorder of the human condition. Simply, temptation is having alternatives presented to us between which we may or must choose. To identify temptation as the attraction to an evil, or better put, to an apparent good, is the mis- to, is to misidentify the reality. It relies on a pedestrian use of the term of temptation. It is true that when people in common everyday speech use the term temptation or one of its derivatives, they mean to communicate the inner struggle of choice, that is, being drawn to something which reason counsels against. It describes a visceral sensation that is mistakenly identified as being a, uh, one of those touchstones of being truly and authentically human. 
Rather, it merely highlights the difficult situation that is a result of sin. Now, the second idea I'd like to consider is that of freedom. That it was impossible for Christ to sin seems to prevent him from claiming an authentic humanity, precisely because it seems that he was not free. Freedom is rightly considered a constitutive element of being human. Now, the difficulty I see with the way the question is raised with regard to freedom is that it does not consider freedom correctly. Similar to the way in which a falsely conceived anthropology was considered, so too is freedom considered from the point of view of fallen humanity. Fallen humanity is not the norm. By knowing the perfect do we come to know the imperfect, or by knowing the imperfect, the perfect is induced. For example, we know illness by knowing what health is, or by knowing lower ways of knowing we can induce to the higher. So just as we do not take a diseased animal for the apotheosis of the species, neither should we consider our own sense of freedom as the pinnacle of authentic humanness. Freedom is often considered or understood to mean a type of license or lack of coercion or ability between alternatives. This is really the wrong idea of freedom. Freedom is the ability to do the good. The more one chooses the good, the more one is free. The greater the virtue one possesses, one actually attains a greater freedom, not less. Even though one is quote-unquote conditioned by the habits developed. The notion of freedom is an absolute, is a, uh, sorry, the, the notion of freedom as an absolute is a deformation of true freedom. It ignores the reality that wrong choices, sinful, actually limit freedom and make the subject a slave. For as is written in John's Gospel, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Now, although Christ was tempted in all things like us, it does not stand to reason that he experienced them, that is to say that those temptations affected the same passions in him as we do. Just as each of us reacts to particular stimuli differently, so too did the Son of Man. That is not to lessen the importance of the temptation or to disparage the authentic humanity which Christ possesses. No temptation is received in the same manner by different human subjects, or even by the same human subject at another time or circumstance. With growth in virtue, one is enabled to be less subject to the passions and more subject to right reason. The difficulty can be best expressed by the presentation of two syllogisms. The first is this, Christ is God, God cannot sin, therefore Christ cannot sin. This simple syllogism emphasizes both that Christ is truly God, and one consequence of this truth is his impeccability. The difficulty presented begins with the conclusion of the first syllogism as a premise, Christ cannot sin. The second premise is that temptation requires the ability to choose sin. Therefore, Christ was not tempted. This is one conclusion. The importance of this is the denial of Christ being truly man. Part of being human is the freedom to choose sin. A second alternative conclusion is that what the Gospels report are not truly temptations. This does not hold by the primary meaning of temptation as a test. It is patently obvious that these were tests. More directly, St. Thomas deals with this proposition in the third part of the Summa, question 41, article 4, response 1, for those who want to look it up. Now, I do not find his reply to this objection based on the temptation to turn stones into bread very convincing. He claims that Christ would have resorted to more human means of alleviating his hunger rather than performing a miracle to do so. The examples Aquinas gives are eating locusts and honey, after the fashion of John the Baptist, as Matthew records in the third chapter of his gospel, or perhaps moving to a nearby town. This seems to ignore the fact that Christ is in the desert. However, the greater insight provided by St. Thomas here is that the devil is seeking to ascertain if what is before him is a mere man or not.
Aquinas sees the devil trying to well, Aquinas sees the devil trying to what he sees the devil trying to do is is to get this man to sin by attempting to assuage his hunger miraculously. So the the double result that the devil seeks is the information regarding the nature of Christ and to persuade this son of Adam to sin, which is what he does to all the sons of Adam. The devil fails on both counts. Now, a third conclusion is that Christ could sin. This conclusion runs contrary to our first syllogism by denying that Christ is truly God. The problem with the second syllogism as formulated is the misunderstanding of temptation. Temptation as a term admits a depth of meaning that is often lost in contemporary common usage. This depth of meaning is important to understand clearly if we are to use it as a theological term and as a basis for theological conclusions. So let's look more closely at what temptation is and arrive at a more precise definition. Then we can examine the sources from which temptation comes. In the Summa, Thomas, uh, in the first, uh, is it the, let's see here, the Prima Secundi, the first part of the second part, question 79, article 1, and the objection 2, Thomas says, a temptation usually denotes a provocation to sin. This is the way in which the argument above uses the term with the added understanding that there is some inner conflict or attraction to that sin which makes choosing difficult. But this is a limited and incomplete way of understanding how the term is used. The basis for defining temptation is to put something or someone to the test. This is most clearly seen when we speak of tempting God. The clarity comes from the knowledge that God does not undergo the same inner difficulty as we've described already, nor is God capable of acting against himself, which is precisely what sin is. Sin is a disobedience to God. God does not disobey himself. The temptation of God consists in omitting to do what one can in order to escape from danger and rely on the assistance of God alone. Testing, then, is done by word or deeds to gain information unknown, or to probe another's prudence, will, or power. To act without any motive would make the, that action a test or a temptation. For example, to spur a horse to flee an enemy versus to spur a horse for no motive save to see how fast the horse can go, which is a test. To be a true temptation, there must be some uncertainty all temptation proceeds from some ignorance or doubt, as St. Thomas says in the same question 97. This uncertainty can be in the tempter or in others. God puts us to the test not because he is ignorant or uncertain of anything, but in order to prove something to others. In the case of Job, which stands out quite remarkably in this case, so Aquinas is influenced by St. Gregory, as is shown in his inclusion of St. Gregory's division of the modes of temptation in the Catena. St. Gregory has three modes of temptation, suggestion, delight, and consent. He states, We, when we are tempted, commonly fall into delight or consent because being born of the sin of the flesh, we bear with us whence we afford strength for the contest. But God, who incarnate in the virgin's womb, came into the world without sin, carried within him nothing of a contrary nature. He could then be tempted by suggestion, but the delight of sin never gnawed his soul, and therefore all that temptation of the devil was without, not within him. Here we see clearly that Christ was indeed tempted. This temptation came from outside him, and that the delight of sin never gnawed his soul, in the words of St. Gregory, does not diminish the effects of the temptation, or, more to the point, does not touch on the essence of temptation. Aquinas gives a treatment of this in his commentary on the epistle to the Romans, regarding, I'm sorry, not Romans, Hebrews, regarding Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Christ is a brother to all humans in his passable nature, 
which in this way in regards to punishment, but not to fault. He makes this very clear in that Christ was tempted not by the flesh, but by the enemy. The reason drawn out here is that in a similar way, Christ learned obedience by what he suffered. Just what St. Paul says in the fifth chapter to Hebrews, verse 8. So too was he made merciful and faithful in that we suffered and was tempted. The sources of temptation are expressed in that classic trifecta, the world, the flesh, and the devil. St. Thomas treats these three temptations with regard to Christ in his commentary on the epistle to the Hebrews. His point in this commentary is to show how Christ was tempted, yet was without sin. Aquinas locates sin only in the temptation of the flesh and denies that Christ underwent this. This is based on his Christology, primarily his understanding of the working of the two natures, divine and human, together. And he treats this in the third part of the Summa, question 15. The other two sources did cause temptation in Christ. And Aquinas affirms the scriptures by saying, Therefore, accepting the temptation which is with sin, in all things he was tempted like unto us. The devil is the cause of sin by temptation directly and indirectly. He is not the cause of all sin directly, since it can occur due to other sources. Indirectly, the devil is the cause, is the cause of all our sins due to his instigation of Adam's sin. St. Thomas affirms this in the first part of the Summa, question 114, article 3. The entirety of the devil's tempting is by way of suggestion. He cannot move the will or coerce. The devil has an ally in the disordered passions of fallen man. He uses appetible goods to our disadvantage. However, it must be remembered that God is able to deliver man from sin under any temptation whatsoever. This is why we pray not to be led into temptation, that is, not to be conquered. See St. Thomas, second part of the second part of the Summa, question 64 and question 83. St. Thomas makes a distinction in temptation as from whence they arise. In a similar way of taking on the infirmities of the flesh, Christ does not have to experience the entire gamut of temptations that fallen humanity does in order for it to be effective or for his humanity to be authentic. So temptation as a mere suggestion from an enemy is without sin, but the temptation from the flesh is not without sin because it is caused by pleasure and concupiscence. This is clear in the citation of St. Gregory. He states, Our enemy was, however, unable to shake the purpose of the mediator between God and men, for he condescended to be tempted outwardly, yet so that his soul inwardly, resting in its divinity, remained unshaken. What this quote makes clear is that the temptation of Christ has its source in things external to him, and that it is not the concupiscence of the flesh, the disordering of the passions, that are the source of his being tempted. However, the phrase resting in his divinity should be clarified, lest it seem to be supportive of the idea that the divinity interferes with the proper and authentic functioning of Christ's human nature, and thereby somehow lessens its authenticity. The first interpretation that I offer is that it refers to the hypostatic union of the natures, which prevents the defects of sin and fomes, peccati, to exist in Christ. It is this union which makes Christ's humanity a salvific instrument, as well as provides true liberty. This liberty is freedom from the slavery of sin. The second interpretation is that the phrase resting in his divinity refers to the grace enjoyed by the soul of Christ that enables it to act unfettered. Notice that it refers to the soul resting and not the body. The body, in a sense, is left to its own proper nature as is signified by the fact that Christ hungered. Rather, it points to Christ as an example that with grace is possible human beings not to sin. With grace, it is possible that human beings do not sin. Having established the importance of the temptation of Christ for both Christology and anthropology, 
And having defined the term and identified the sources of temptation, let's consider the exegesis of the temptation of Christ. In this consideration, the focus will be to address the issue at hand and not to cover all aspects of, of the material presented. So in each gospel account of the temptation is right after the baptism of the Lord. But St. Luke puts the genealogy here, perhaps to emphasize Christ's human ancestry and point to his likeness to us. Why does John not have these events recorded or even mentioned? To answer this last question, St. Thomas includes this thought from origin in the commentary on St. Luke's account. But John, who had commenced his gospel from God, saying, In the beginning was the word, did not describe the temptation of the Lord, because God cannot be tempted, of whom he wrote. But because in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, the human generations are given, and in Mark it is man who is tempted, therefore Matthew, Mark, and Luke have described the temptation of the Lord. The theme that runs through the patristic authors, at least as St. Thomas edits them, is that the key to understanding the temptations is that they are salvific acts. The devil is overthrown by Christ's righteousness, and unless it is assumed, it is not saved, to paraphrase a saying of the church fathers. There should be deeper realization that Christ and Adam are much alike, particularly regarding the temptations. Adam did not have the interior struggle with temptation in the initial battle, neither does Christ. Adam fell, Christ is victorious. Since Adam fell, all of human uh, humanity uh, is doomed except in Christ. It is only by the power of God coming from Christ that humanity can now triumph over the devil and his wiles. It is important to, to situate the temptations of Christ within the whole context of the Incarnation. By doing this, we can better see that the temptations are not only salvific, but also that these three instances are not the only time that Christ is put to the test. It can be seen in the Gospels that the devil returns at other times and with other tactics to achieve his ill purpose, usually by stirring up the enemies of Christ. For example, see Matthew 27:42, Mark 14:65. However, even the temptations offer another interpretation to give a further insight into this diabolical methodology. I'm referring to Aquinas' inclusion of Origen's interpretation of the temptations. Origen states that Jesus is tempted by the devil 40 days, and what the temptations were we know not. They were perhaps omitted as being greater than committed to writing. With this interpretation of St. Luke's account, we have a greater understanding that resonates with our experience because Christ could have been badgered for 40 days, even though not having an interior rebelling. It's a kind of suffering akin to what we experience in temptation. This is, of course, speculation based on the silence of the gospel account. Yet it has some resonance for those seeking a greater similarity in the emotional and psychic life of Christ and the rest of humanity. Following the citation of Origen, St. Thomas quotes Basil, St. Basil, offering another interpretation. Basil seems to stress the influence of the divinity during the 40 days as a way of establishing that nature in Christ. This is followed by the manifestation of his humanity to give the complete picture. He states, The Lord remained 40 days untempted, for the devil knew he fasted yet hungered not, and dared not therefore approach him. Hence it follows, and he ate nothing in those days. He fasted indeed to show that he who would gird himself for struggles against temptation must be temperate and sober. So St. Basil locates the hunger after the 40 days fast and seems to have it be this, the cause of the temptation coming to tempt the Lord. This reading of the text would lend evidence to the idea that the devil does not attack the divinity nor does Christ rely on the divinity to repel the attacks of the devil. Rather, the devil sees the weakness of flesh and attacks the human nature. This recognition by the devil is part of the cause of the uncertainty which leads him to tempt Christ, since the devil did not expect the Son of God to take on the weakness of human flesh. As St. Basil says later in the commentary, because not to suffer hunger is above the nature of man, our Lord, our Lord took upon himself the feeling of hunger 
and submitted himself as it pleased him to human nature, both to do and to suffer those things which were his own. Athanasius seems to agree with this understanding of the motivations of the devil, for he says, the devil, entered into, the devil entered not into a contest with God, for he durst not, and therefore said, You are the Son of God, but he contended with man, whom once he had power to deceive. The temptations are the beginning point to get deeper insight into the ways of the devil throughout the course of Christ's life and in the life of those who would be his followers. He tempts in various ways, appetite, ambition, covetousness, and stirs up the Pharisees in order to get Christ to hate, to finally in the passion with sorrow and despair. For example, Matthew 27, 41 to 43, Mark 15, 27 to 32. To this latter notion, St. Thomas finds support from Theophylact, who states that the devil, having tempted Christ in the desert with pleasure, the devil retires from him until the crucifixion, when he was about to tempt him with sorrow. This gives insight to the tools of the devil, the character of Christ, and how to wage spiritual warfare. St. Ambrose points out the weaponry of this warfare, for he states, There are three especial weapons which we are taught the devil is wont to arm himself with that he may wound the soul of man. One is of the appetite, another of boasting, the third ambition. You see then what kind of arms Christ uses to defend man against the assaults of spiritual wickedness and the allurements of the appetite. He does not exert his power as God, for how had that profited me? But as man, he summons to himself a common aid, that while intent upon the food of divine reading, he may neglect the hunger of the body and gain the nourishment of the word. For he who seeks after the word cannot feel the want of earthly bread, for divine things doubtless make up for the loss of the human. At the same time by saying, man lives not by bread alone, he shows that man was tempted, that is, our flesh which he assumed, not his own divinity. This makes it quite clear that it is the humanity of Christ that is tempted, and it is the humanity of Christ that conquers. The Catechism teaches, Jesus' temptation reveals the way in which the Son of God is Messiah, contrary to the way Satan proposes him and the way men wish to attribute to him. This is why Christ vanquished the tempter for us. In the Summa, it should be noted that St. Thomas is arguing from fittingness rather than necessity solicitaire. The simplest answer St. Thomas gives for why Christ was tempted is that Christ wished to be tempted. Of the four reasons Aquinas gives for the temptations of Christ in the third part of the Summa, question 41, article 1, the first is the most germane to the issue here we're, we're considering. The reason is to strengthen us against temptation. By citing this reason, Aquinas is firmly in the tradition of following the patristic axiom, that which is not assumed by Christ is not saved by Christ. The way this plays out is by a paralleling of sorts. Christ takes on our defects and infirmities as a way of redeeming and saving us. Not only does Christ take on our nature and the non-sinful concomitants in which it finds itself in a post-lapsarian state, but incorporates us into himself, so that by his death our death is destroyed. By his rising we rise, and therefore, in a similar way, by his temptations he conquers our temptations. This brings out even more clearly the depth and import of Hebrews 4.15. In line with Augustine, we can see that Christ destroys the devil's work by suffering them, not by powerful deeds, by righteousness, not by power. As Jerome says, Christ's purpose was to vanquish by humility. In response to why Christ offers himself to temptation, St. Augustine states that, he might be our mediator in vanquishing temptation, not by aid only, but by example. That the temptations of Christ have the essence of testing in that the devil is unsure if Christ was the Son of God. Now this can be tied in to the patristic teaching on the divine plan regarding the incarnation and espousal of the Blessed Virgin to St. Joseph. This teaching holds that one reason for the marriage is to hide the incarnation from the devil. 
the temptation of the adult Christ would be evidence that if this is indeed the case, it worked. The uncertainty of the devil regarding the identity of Christ is attested to by pseudo-Christism. Aquinas includes this passage in the Catena, oh, uh, yes, in the Catena uh, from Matthew's Gospel. The Lord knew the thoughts of the devil and that he would want that he wanted to tempt him. The devil had certain evidence about Christ, angelic preaching of his birth, shepherds, magi, testimony of St. John. The Lord proceeds against the devil as God and man. His hunger was as man, and so that his divinity might not be revealed, since as God he never hungers, and so that the devil would tempt him, and over this Christ would be victor. Following this, Aquinas cites St. Hilary. Here the point is that here the, the point is that it is the human nature, according to its own strength, as evidenced by hunger, would overcome the devil. The devil is vanquished by the flesh and not by the divinity. Along these same lines that the devil is conquered by flesh, Aquinas includes the comment of St. John Chrysostom, the temptation increases human honor. He states, For although God allows that we should be tempted for many other reasons, yet for this cause also he allows it, that we may know that man, when tempted, is placed in a station of greater honor. This must be understood in the context of the other comments on this pericope. Many of the patristic authors and St. Thomas, by incorporating them into his own thought, see in the placement of the temptations of Christ after his baptism and period of fastings as pointing to the greater sanctity and therefore honor of Christ. The connection is then made that those who would follow that example and are righteous possess greater honor. These then become targets for the devil who seeks to bring down those who seek after holiness. St. Ambrose says as much when he comments that the devil envies us whenever we strive after better things. The temptations show the humanity of Christ. Not that he experienced the feeling of, quote-unquote, being tempted the way we do, but in his being hungry. If this was not the case, he would not have been tempted since there would be no need. The temptations show the authenticity of the human nature, not in struggle or lack thereof, but in the evidence to the devil that showed that nature. Yet he caused things only God could do, thereby putting the devil to confusion. The devil learned nothing from the first temptation, so he moved on to another, according to Saint to pseudo-Christism. This same author puts in the devil's mind the discourse that is not proved that it is not proved that he is the Son of God, but at least it is a holy man who can forgo things of the flesh, and so the devil moves on to vainglory. This uncertainty that remains in the devil is evidence that it is the human nature being tempted and succeeding. It does not touch on the divine cannot sin as the difficulty we started this talk with proposes. Rather, it highlights that human nature can overcome temptation and does not fall of necessity. With regard to the first temptation, St. Hilary states, and therefore in the temptation he makes a proposal of such a double kind by which his divinity would be made known by the miracle of the transformation, the weakness of the man deceived by the delight of food. This gives a great insight into the Incarnation. It shows that the unity is in the person without a confusion of natures. Each nature still acts according to its own essence. What is the mistake, then, that the devil makes by which he fails? The mistake is he thinks that the passions so rule Christ, like all other men, that his reason will be darkened and he will be deceived. But this is not part of the nature. And this is precisely the mistake in the proposed difficulty between the divinity of Christ and the nature of his temptations. Referring back to pseudo-Christism, we see that the devil is unsure after the second temptation as well, and passes to the third attempt. The three attempts are identified as appeals to appetite, ambition, and covetousness. With regard to this third temptation, Aquinas includes an interesting quote from Origen. The devil showed Christ his, that is the devil's, own kingdom rather than those of the world, his which is governed by fornication, avarice, etc., if the point is to find out the power, 
then our Lord wins an even greater victory because the devil is rebuked and the dilemma is not definitively solved, for it is not that our Lord tries and fails to turn them. A further insight into this temptation is by a gloss which states that Christ saw with the eyes of a physician looking on a disease as opposed to the way we would look with lust. Here is another example that there can be a true temptation without the stirring of disordered passions and the feeling of difficulty within. What should be pointed out is that there is a notion of suffering that needs to be included in the understanding of temptation. One undergoes temptation as a patient. Pseudo-Chrysostom states that when Christ suffers at the hands of the devil, he is patient. When the devil usurps the honor of God, Christ drives him away. The importance of this passage that I would like to point out is that Christ is patient, but that he is a patient. Oh, I point out that, that Christ is not... Let me start again. The importance of this passage that I would like to point out is not that Christ is patient, but that he is a patient. Following the baptism of Christ and his commission, as it were, to being his public ministry, the first thing that he experiences is suffering. The devil is the acting tempter and Christ suffers to this, to an extent, passively. This passivity is all the more remarkable considering the person who is being tempted, God the Son. There is a similarity between the Passion and the events of the Passion which bind the entire incarnation as a salvific whole, bookends, if you will. God has given creatures, both angelic and human, room to act to the extent that he himself is passive, is a patient. This is not mere permission, but because of the incarnation, it is a being acted upon. In the Summa, third part, question 41, article 4, St. Thomas focuses on the mode of the temptations, which has value in our present discussion. Agreeing with St. Gregory, Aquinas states that this temptation is in the form of suggestion. Although temptation is a kind of universal, suggestions are particular and are not received in the same way by all. The suggestions of the tempter arise from those things to which the person tempted is inclined. Note here that Christ is not inclined to evil, but because of his authentic human nature and his fasting, he is indeed hungry and therefore inclined to eat. Here is the devil's opening. This provides the slight thing from which the devil moves to tempt in graver things, as is his typical modus operandi. It is typical in the sense that this is the way the devil proceeded in tempting Adam. Enticement of mind to consent to eat forbidden fruit, tempted to vainglory, and lead to the height of pride. You will be like gods. The same sequence is used against Christ, the new Adam, for this maintains the typology of Christ as being the second Adam and redeeming by way of parallel that which is fallen in a manner similar to the fall. Aquinas identifies the sequence of temptation used against Christ is this. Tempted to, support, tempted to the support of corporeal nature, which all men desire. Advanced to a more spiritual plane in doing things for show, vainglory. And he led the temptation on to that in which no spiritual men, but only carnal men have part namely to wor desire worldly riches and fame to the extent of holding God in contempt. In the first two temptations, the devil uses the phrase, if thou be the son of God, and Christ resists these temptations by quoting the authority of the law, not by enforcing his power. Aquinas, citing St. Leo, holds that this gives greater honor to human nature and more punishment to the devil. This is relevant because it shows that the battle taking place is being waged by man. Christ, as a real man with an authentic human nature, is being tested by the devil and is using the resources available to his nature in this conflict. So I contend that Christ experienced a greater intensity of temptation, not because of disorder, which must, of course, be ruled out, but, but precisely because of the order of his passions. As perfect man, Christ's enjoyments would be properly ordered and more intense, as would his other passions and appetites. 
He expressed human life in the way it should be experienced, to the full. If he did not, then he would not have had the power to give it to others, which goes against Scripture. Consult John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 21, and the 10th verse of the 10th chapter of St. John's Gospel. Temptation is felt more acutely in those who do not yield than in those who yield quickly. Reminds me of the quip attributed to Mark Twain, who said, I can quit smoking anytime I want. I've done it a hundred times. It's not because of the disorder, but because of the burden and suffering that the temptation causes. It is the good in that which is suggested which attracts, and it attracts with particular strength to a will that is truly ordered to the good. Just because the source of temptation does not arise interiorly does not mean that it is not felt interiorly. We must differentiate between the cause and the effect of the temptation. Temptation can be great pressure, which can wear someone down and cause stress and inner sadness. This Christ experienced, for he said that his soul was sad even unto death. In this sentiment, we have a glimpse of the inner life of the God-man as he undergoes temptation, testing. So in the final part here of this investigation, this consideration, I'd like to turn to a, contempor uh, to a contemporary consideration of the temptations of Christ. And for this, I, I offer the thoughts of Pope Benedict XVI in his book, Jesus of Nazareth. In this book, he has a chapter devoted to the temptations of Christ. And I present the pertinent thought found there and comment on them with regard to the difficulty under consideration in, in this podcast. So, surprisingly, the Holy Spirit's first command to the newly anointed and commissioned Christ is to go to the desert to be tempted. As an aside, it's interesting to note that testing normally comes before anointing. One thinks of the rather lengthy period of preparation and testing that seminarians undergo before they are ordained and anointed. The 40 days in the desert is a descent into the perils besetting mankind. The core of the mission of the Anointed One is entering into the drama of human existence to its depths. For this idea, Pope Benedict turns to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 for support. The Pope has the descent into hell possess a wider meaning and application based on Hebrews 2. He applies to all human conditions, which includes temptation. There's a particular link for Benedict when the baptism and the temptations in Christ's solidarity with sinners. He sees these events as an anticipation that condenses into a single expression the struggle he endured at every step of his mission. The Pope opens his discussion on the Matthean and Lucan accounts by stating that they reflect the inner struggle over his own particular mission and at the same time addresses the question as to what truly matters in human life. He points to the heart of temptation as pushing God aside in preference to other more urgent matters, but qualifies this as the temptation that threatens all of us. He is not speaking here of the inner life of Christ. Another integral part of the temptation for Pope Benedict is moral posturing. It holds out a type of materialistic empiricism as the only reality which should occupy our time and energy. This is seen in the idea of power and the image of bread. In short, God becomes a superfluity. The central issue is the reality of God and his goodness. The temptations of Christ pertain to what the Savior must do or not do with regard to this central issue of human existence. I would like to point out that Christ came to this moral knowledge according to the mode of human knowing. And in that mode, there is always some effort or struggle involved. And so it seems appropriate that Christ would have this experience as well. This leads me to another insight gained by investigating the, in, the temptations of Christ. This concerns his knowledge. If we take the patristic idea that the flesh and not the divinity conquers the devil, then it would imply that it is as a man intellectually that Christ is engaged in battle, is understanding, and is matching wits with the tempter. This is evidenced by the attempt to deceive Christ that the rebuttals of Christ are open to anyone. Benedict notes that there is no reoccurrence of if thou be from Matthew 4.3 to Matthew 27.40. He sees the blending of temptation with mockery. 
is a particular blend that asks for proof from Christ. This is seen through the public life of our Lord. Pope Benedict then makes a turn to comment on humanity's contemporary situation, pointing out that this is still done today. He gives examples of demanding from God more obvious signs of that he is, of who he is, and what his will is. Taking his cue from Matthew's account, the Pope expands on the theme of hunger and the accompanying temptations to a macrocosmic level, that is, world hunger. God fed Israel with manna in the desert. Will not the Messiah do at least as much? Here, redemption is measured by a social yardstick. The Pope points to Marxism as the modern tempter in this regard. This is particularly apt when he applies the temptation to the church, the body of Christ. He follows this line of thought into the greater gospel context, which takes us too far afield for the topic under discussion uh, right now. But let it suffice to say that it does make the important connection of Christ's solidarity with humanity, but more pointed with his followers. Benedict states clearly that the issue, the issue in the temptations of Christ and are, are, are more clearly in their extension today in the world is the primacy of God. He says, the issue is acknowledging that God is a reality, that he is the reality without which nothing else can be good. The Pope begins his consideration of the second temptation by pointing out that the devil attempts to trap Christ by the use of Scripture. As he states, the devil proves to be a Bible expert who can quote the psalm exactly. This temptation takes the form of a dispute between two Bible scholars. It seems the difficulty at the heart of uh, this consideration of, of mine at this podcast falls under the condemnation of the second temptation as Benedict sees it. Some modern scriptural exegesis has muted God and disallowed his ability to act in the world so that we tell him what he can or cannot do and what we will and should do. The difficulty interprets scripture in such a way that it does not follow, that does not allow God to be truly God, nor God to be truly God and man. What is the dispute over this interpretation of scripture? As the Pope states, the dispute about interpretation is ultimately a dispute about who God is that is at the heart of the difficulty between the temptations in the Gospels and Christology. If these questions are not answered or even asked correctly, it can adversely affect anthropology and our own self-understanding as well. In putting God to the test here in the second temptation and in Exodus 17.7, God has to prove that he is God. This is the ultimate inversion by which the creature makes the creator an object to be tested in order to satisfy our criteria of certainty. Benedict points out rightly that this touches on epistemology, particularly with regard to knowing God and having a relationship with him. The descent that Christ chooses in the second temptation, according to Pope Benedict, is connected to the descent to hell. It is Christ's unlimited trust in God the Father that is important, not the proof that the devil requires. Turning to the third temptation, Pope Benedict shows how this temptation pertains directly to Christ's mission as Messiah. Each temptation has a counterpart in the activity of Christ's public ministry, the multiplication of loaves, the Last Supper's institution of the Eucharist, and now the resurrection. It is the power flowing from the resurrection that Christ has, but this presupposes the passion and death. Pope Benedict sees a poignant contrast connected to this temptation in the choice of Barabbas over Jesus in the passion. The connection with the temptation here is that the crowd chose the messianic figure, the freedom fighter revolutionary, the one seeking temporal power and kingdom over the true Bar Abbas, son of the father the Messiah. The importance of this in our consideration is that it shows the consistency of Christ's action throughout his entire life, that he acts according to human nature in following the will of God. Christ appears so human in his weakness that the crowds choose a robber and a murderer in an attempt to secure their temporal kingdom. They failed this third temptation. If Christ did not have true humanity that freely obeyed the will of God, then this scene would certainly have played out differently. 
Although it's not immediately clear how this pertains to the difficulty at hand in this example, I do make the argument that because of the testing Christ underwent in the third temptation and its extension in this scene in the Passion, the authentic humanity of Christ is very clear. So clear, in fact, that the crowds are misled into thinking a murderer is the Messiah. In short, Christ is too human to be the Son of God. This is an example of how he conquers in the weakness of the flesh and puts the devil to confusion. Even the first pope, good Saint Peter, had difficulty in this regard, as is recorded in Saint Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 22. There's no coincidence then that the rebuke Christ uses against Peter is so similar to the one used in the third temptation. In conclusion, I think the difficulty has been sufficiently answered. It's been answered in numerous ways. First, the question itself is based on false premises that concern the notion of freedom in human anthropology. Freedom is the ability to do good, not the mere license between competing alternatives. Jesus Christ is actually the freest possessor of a human nature. He is free from the bondage of sin to the extent that he liberates all those who share that nature. Regarding that nature, it is a mistake to posit that which contributes to its essence from the standpoint of its lapsed, fallen state. That is to say, the pull of temptation felt by fallen and sinful members of the human race does not contribute to the essence of human nature. The source of temptation coming from both within and without is an important distinction to make with regards to Christology. Christ was not tempted by the interior rebelling of his flesh. He was, however, truly tempted from without in a way that enables a true and salvific solidarity with the rest of the race. There's a greater appreciation for this solidarity as, a well, as well as a deeper insight into the life of the God-man. May God bless you and continue to have a blessed and happy Lent. Until next time.